Welcome to He Gets It Podcast, a platform used to inspire and educate listeners on difficult issues that affect all Americans. If you would like Carlos to speak at your next event, please log on to honoraysenterprise.net for booking information. Get ready to step out of your comfort zone with your host, Carlos and Tatum Honore. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 13th edition of He Gets It Podcast. We're your host. I'm Carlos Honore. And I'm Tatum Honore. And we're going to start this thing off the way we always do every Friday. Guys, grab your drinks, all the stress from the week, your boss getting on your nerves, toast it up. So... Um, some of you guys have heard me tell my story and I decided to take this opportunity to share my story with those of you that haven't heard it before. Um, and I'm kind of just going to jump right into it. If you don't have anything to add before I get started, I'm going to go ahead and get started. No, I think, um, we decided to have the 13th episode in order for Carlos to uh, talk about uh, his story. We shared a little bit about my story a couple of weeks ago, so we'll talk about his story and talk about how it ties into um, the SEED project and what we do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, But before we get into that, let's talk about the update on our uh, racism challenge. Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. (laughs) I'd like to talk about that. Yes, I want to talk about that, too. So, when we first started the racism challenge, there was a lot of things going on in America. There was a lot of um, protesting. There was a lot well, of. Well, there's still. A lot yeah, of but it's not as much as it was yeah. when we started. Yeah. There's still some protesting, but everybody was caught up in the in the in the moment. And when we issued the challenge, it wasn't for those people that were caught up in the moment to take. This is something that we wanted to try and affect change and show people different perspectives on how people can perceive uh, racism or how many people may not even know their races to bring those conversations to light. And we've been disappointed in the participation of our viewers. And I know it's a lot of work, but it's going to take a lot of work to affect change when it comes to racism. And that's why we did it in the way that we did. We could have gave given you guys, easy. yeah, we could have given you guys five questions and said, ask these five questions and that's it. But we wanted you guys to educate yourself. That's why we asked to take the first three days to do background and literature on racism and read stuff and educate yourself and then have the conversations. But to me, it feels like the the thrill is gone and people are trying to get back to the norm and forgetting about the issues at hand. How do you feel? Is that what? Yeah, I, I get the same feeling, but we're not chastising you guys. What we're saying is we're a little disappointed, but you can still participate in the challenge. Um, uh, go to our uh, original uh, podcast in which we have the orientation. If you have not participated, please do so because this is a way that we can affect real change. Um, and that's all I can say. You know, uh, we don't want to get back into complacency and just figure, oh, okay, well, you know, protests are slowing down. 
you know, um, so hey, uh, it's not in the news anymore, so it's not important to, to me. It should be important all the time. It should be at the forefront of your minds all the time, simply because we want to affect change that affects our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. That's why we're doing this. Yep. So we'll repost um, the directions on how to, to, to join in. And if you guys want to start your first day of the 28-day challenge tomorrow or next week, Monday, that's fine. But we ask that everybody that's watching make a effort. Our viewers, you know, we have belief in you guys. You yeah. know, we, we believe that you're going to do the right thing. You listen to us for a reason. And so uh, we figure that, you know, racism uh, in America, it's real. And we know it's real. And the only way we can try to dismantle it is to definitely have these types of conversations. Those tough conversations, like we said, yeah. making the uncomfortable comfortable. comfortable. Yes. So that's it. We're not going to harp on that anymore. <laughs> but we just wanted to put that out there that it's going to take a group effort. Yes. To yes. And for those of you who have participated and who um, have been sending us your information, We'll be sharing that in um, our next podcast. That way, um, um, the information is out there. We'll be posting. So we want to say thank you um, to those who have um, participated, and we want to say thank you to those who are going to participate. Yep. So putting that behind us, I'm going to tell my story, and then we're going to, at the end, we're going to wrap it up to show you how that fits into everything that we do so my story goes like this. I had two parents that were young, 19 and 15 when they had my oldest brother. And they made some decisions in their life that young kids having babies would make. And I want you guys to know that I'm not judging my parents. I'm not angry at them. I don't want you to think that I'm talking bad about them when I tell my story, but it is a part of my story. And the decisions that they made affect me and my brothers in certain ways. And I'm just sharing from my perspective, how it has affected me in my life. Yeah, and as, as parents in general, I mean, it's a, a, there will be a learning curve and it's work in progress. For us as parents, we're still learning. So, you know, there's no parent out there that can say that they're perfect. They're perfect, you yeah. Know? Yep, and they make mistakes. Yeah. Parents make mistakes. So they made some decisions and life happened and it ended us in Iowa. And if you guys heard me speak, I've talked in detail about what happened to make us have to move to Iowa, but we ended up having to go to Iowa. And for me, it was a total culture shock. I was in Baton Rouge where it was um, majority black. Um, I didn't have any interaction with white people at that time. And then I was sent to this place where I was the minority now. It was 9% black when I got there. Uh, there were some friends, some, some white people that didn't accept me because of whatever reasons. And there were some black people there that didn't accept me for whatever reasons. So I found it hard to fit in when I first moved there. I was 12 years old. And the people that accepted me turned out to be the people that I had no business hanging out with. My grandmother was real um, active in my life. And as you guys know, grandmothers, especially in the black community, are the pillars of our family. And I was lucky enough to be able to live with my grandmother and soak up a lot of those 
teachings that she had and a lot of the experiences that she had. But when I moved there, I knew better. I knew not to hang out with the, the wrong crowd, but those are the kids that accepted me. So I ran with it. What kid at that age doesn't want to feel accepted and like they belong to something? But these kids were um, troubled youth. And I liked hanging out with them because they accepted me and we did things that we shouldn't have done. I ended up uh, being on probation in Iowa for fighting and carrying on. I was, I was one strike away from getting sent away to um, a juvenile detention center. And what brought me to change my life, there was a, there was a, a event in my life that changed me and made me realize that I'm going down a path at, that I shouldn't be going down. And this was at the age of 12, 13 years old, which is hard for a kid that age to make a decision to leave his friends because he realized that those friends are no good for him. And the incident was, I call it the gun incident. It was downtown Iowa City, and we were hanging out. I had no curfew then. It had to be about 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. We're downtown Iowa City just being bad. And <laughs> being bad. Being bad. That's no other way to put it. We were just... I guess I better not ask. <laughs> not on camera. Okay, I'm yeah. not going to ask. Don't ask me on camera. <laughs> so we were downtown, and there was... It's a college town, and this group of guys were walking past us, and this guy bumped shoulders with me, and I could have let it go, but you were twelve. I was twelve, yeah. and I had I, I knew I had backup. And I knew if something happened, we've done it a hundred times before. One of us fight, we all fight. So I knew that if it got to a fighting situation, we were jumping. That is what it is. But this guy. Seemed small when he bumped me, but when he turned around and started walking towards me, it seemed like he grew the closer he got to me. <laughs> so I'm still 12, even though I'm, I'm, I'm cocky, I'm still 12, and I'm scared. Wait, wait, I have to ask you. Okay, so now when you think about it, was he really that big, or was he? I don't think he was that big, but I was that small. And okay. I think he, in comparison to me, a college kid, yeah. Okay. I don't think he was that big. But it, it seemed like he was growing because he got closer. And so the closer he got, I started to realize my fight or flight mode kicked in. And I couldn't run because my boys were there. I didn't want to look like no punk and didn't want them to call me all these names, cry babies, whatever. So I stood my ground and he got closer. But what he didn't know is two months earlier on Christmas vacation while we were visiting I stole my grandmother's handgun out of her drawer in her bedroom. And that night I had the gun in my waistline and I was prepared to use it. I never fired a gun. I've never handled a gun. I, I had it because I was in sixth grade and I was, it, was, it was cool to have it. That's the only reason. I never, in Iowa, there was no need for a gun. But as he was walking closer to me, I pulled the gun out because I knew I wasn't going to run. I pulled it and I pointed it right at his head. And before I knew it, I pulled the trigger. Click. I closed my eyes and I just waited for an uh, explosion or whatever happens when you shoot a gun. And nothing happened. So I pulled the trigger again thinking that the gun was jammed or, and nothing happened. The bullet did not come out the chamber because there were no bullets in the gun. And in that moment, I realized that 
I could have ruined not only my life, but the life of that young man and his family and my family. I was being selfish, but I took that as a second chance at life and being able to change and being able to to redirect my future in the way that it was going because I was going the wrong way and I knew better. I'd always been taught to do what's right, but in hanging with these kids, I got off track. But that night scared me enough to scare me straight. It scared me straight. So I had to go through the punishments. Uh, My dad beat the shit out of me. (laughs) And it's just, and I think as a parent, maybe I would have done the same thing. If my son had pulled a gun on somebody, I don't know, I can't say. But um, I I was one strike away from being sent away. And I, that was another thing. I was humiliated to have to go check in every Tuesday with a probation officer to just to check in. I had to stop what I was doing in my life to go. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't that kind of kid and I knew it. So I served my time and it was a little rough. You know, I, I, when you say serve time, what you had, uh, Oh, probation, probation. So. Yeah. I served my probation and I had some hiccups along the way. I, I was still fighting the change and still fighting and doing some stuff. It was hard. It was hard to just switch and change, but I, I was able to do it with the help of, the first mentor that stepped into my life. And that guy's name is Tom Lepic. And he he's a guy that's a wrestling fanatic. He saw me walking in the hallways at Northwest Junior High in Iowa City, and he asked me to come join the wrestling team, at least come to practice. I didn't like it because I saw what they had to wear in the wrestling meets. These little tutus. <laughs> I called them tutus. <laughs> I called them tutus. But they were wrestling singlets, and it didn't leave much to the imagination. And you had to be rolling around on the floor with another guy in it. That was enough for me not to want to do it at that age. But still in all, I went. And the amazing thing is, when I got in that wrestling room, that feeling of belonging to something and being a part of something and being accepted, I got it that day, and I was hooked. That's what I had been missing. And it was brought to me in the form of an athletic team. And I didn't know much about sports at the time, but I knew that that's the feeling that I wanted. I agreed to wrestle, and Tom Lepic agreed to make sure that I got to practice and home if I decided to commit myself to wrestling, which I did. Fast forward, eighth grade year, still in sports, still fighting here and there, but not anything to where I'm in, in jeopardy of being sent away. Eighth grade year, I tried football. I was a natural football player, and the high school coach took note of that. He came into the junior high school and recruited me to come play football at his high school, Iowa City West. Play high school whenever you got to the ninth grade. Right. Okay. Right. He was recruiting me in eighth grade because there were two schools in our in our area, mm-hmm. and we were rivals. And my brother, Corey, went to the rival high school, and I went to West High. I didn't want to go to his school because they would have been calling me Corey Honore's little brother, blah, blah, blah. I wanted to make my own name. Oh, and to this day, they still try to figure out who's the best football player. That was, <laughs> there's no contest. He got All-State as a nose guard. He was a running, he was a running back, but got All-State as a nose guard. 
But I got all state three years in a row. Oh, the, digress. The only the only athlete in the state of Iowa to get all state three years in a row. Corey, eat that. <laughs> but anyway, now I digress. So I decided to go to Iowa City West to play football there. And the crazy thing was, they were like two games away from being in the Guinness Book of World Record for having the most consecutive lost. And that still wasn't enough to deter me from going there because I wanted to make my own name. I figured I would be a big fish in a small pond instead of going over to the other school where I'd been a big fish in a big pond with all the other athletes that they had over there. So it was still a transition for me, but I ended up um, gelling well. The coach took me under his wing. Reese Morgan was the second mentor in my life. Um, He later on went to coach on at the University of Iowa, had a great career there. But he came along in my life. The stars aligned just right where he was in my life to help me and mold me into the young man that I needed to become. Um, Sophomore year in high school, my parents were struggling with some um, issues that they couldn't control, and they were leaving. And I just had my breakout year. I had a sophomore, got All-State, and my parents were up and leaving. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to have to go reprove myself somewhere else. So my uh, high school, one of the high school assistant coaches talked to his parents and convinced his parents that knew nothing about me, had never met me, convinced his parents to take me in and live with them. And this was a 60, they were in their 60s at the time, old white couple, and they embraced me. And the, the beautiful thing is I got to see how a successful parent, a successful family operates. I got to see how um, having a support system can af- a positively affect a child when they have that support system. They took me in and made sure that I got everything that I needed to make me successful. If I didn't, if I didn't succeed, it wasn't because I didn't have the support system. It's because I chose not to put the work in to succeed. But they gave me the tools to be successful. So time went on. I've lived with them. I had a curfew now. It was hard to adjust. I cried many a nights because I, you know, they wanted me in at 10 o'clock. Things are just getting started at 10 o'clock. You wanted to be out until 2. I wanted to be out until whenever I wanted to come home. (laughs) And that's what I was accustomed to. But kids yearn for that discipline. They yearn for those rules and those lessons I still use with my kids. When I want to give them leeway, when I know that's something they should not be doing and the parent has the, the best um, interest, interest yeah, after the kid, they have to, you have to, you have to stick to your guns because those kids are going to love you regardless, but they're going to love you more if you give them that discipline in their life. They yearn for it. And I, I'm proof of that. So junior year rolls around another great year of football, all state senior year rolls around same thing. So I'm ready to graduate. I'm getting recruiting. I'm getting letters from, all over the country. And by this time, I've made a complete 360, and I've, I chose to, to dedicate my life to being the best athlete that I could be. Um, I, 180. 180, <laughs> 360, 180, I turned around. And to be the best I can be. So I, I, year round, I dedicated to sports. I played, I wrestled, I was in football, um, I did soccer. I didn't know anything about soccer, but I knew that it was good for football. So I did it. Now, 
Don't pass over ballet. <laughs> he did ballet. <laughs> it was the thing to do back then. All football players did ballet because it was good for you. That's what they told me anyway. But I did do it and I excelled at it. <laughs> so, um, my senior year, I'm ready to go. Um, we didn't win the state championship, but I felt good where I was because I knew that I was going on to play football somewhere else. The only problem is the SAT, ACT, I had to take the damn thing four times. I got a 14, 14, 16, and in my third try, fourth. my fourth try, I got a 23. And you were right. a, a 14, 14, 16, and 23. Okay, so four. four times, okay. yeah. And I was elated. I'm ready to go. There's nothing else that I need to do but just graduate high school, which was going to happen. And I was off to the races. Ended up going to the University of Iowa. I chose to go to Iowa because all the people that invested so much in me when I was in high school, all the coaches, teachers, and mentors, I, I wanted them to be able to see me perform on Saturdays without having to travel halfway across the world because I was going to go to Miami, but I chose <laughs> not to because I wanted them to see the fruits of their labor. Got to Iowa, had some hiccups. They pulled my ACT scores, wanting to know how I got from a 16, a 14, to a 23. They thought I cheated. So now I'm under investigation. They pulled me from all activity with the team. I couldn't eat with the team. I couldn't practice. I couldn't lift with the team, anything. And it took a toll on me. I Football was my driving force to keep me on track and keep me level. And it was what I used and it was taken away from me for something that was out of my control. So I, I was upset not only with the NCAA, but with the coaching staff at Iowa, because I felt like they should have fought more for me. They kind of just let the NCAA do what they wanted to do with me. And I felt like, well, you don't know what they were doing behind the scenes. Yeah, I don't, I don't, but I know that they weren't giving me any updates or making me feel comfortable about the situation. Mm -hmm. It was just that you can't do this. You can't do that. And we'll let you know when you can do those things. Mm -hmm. And I felt like they recruited me hard. They, they didn't want me to get out of the state because it would look bad on them. And now that I'm there, it's kind of like sink or swim. I know you're going through this, but sink or swim. And I could be wrong, but that's how I felt. So I got upset and I decided to leave. And you don't think maybe you had some depression too? No, it was, I, I definitely did. It was did. all anger. Yeah, anger. yeah, yeah, it was definitely. And um, what I wish I had, one year after I left, Coach Reese Morgan, which was my second mentor in my life, he ended up getting hired at the University of Iowa the year after I left. And what I wish would have happened is that he got recruited and joined the team before I decided to leave because I know he would have convinced me that leaving was the wrong thing, and it was. I transferred to Southwest Missouri State, and it was everything just went. It went downhill went from there. Downhill. Yeah, and um, to say the least, I ended up, you know, reverting back to what I knew. I got into some not legal trouble, but doing irresponsible things because I didn't have sports in my life anymore and I ended up meeting my wife after all that and stuff got back on track and here I am today a father of three and what I consider a success despite everything that I've gone through 
but I consider myself a successful entrepreneur, a businessman, father, husband, all the things that were stacked against me when I was in Baton Rouge and the situation we were born in, no one would have predicted that I would have ended up the way that I am now. And I'm not done, but I think at the age of 42, I'm... You sure you want to put your age on? I don't care. I look good for my age. <laughs> I look good. <laughs> I think where I'm at right now, I'm happy in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I think... That's all that matters. Yeah, that's all that matters, you know. And I think there's so many people that uh, they're doing things that don't fulfill them and they don't make them happy. And I don't mind getting up every morning and putting in eight to 10 hours in what I do because I enjoy it. It doesn't even feel like work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the most important thing. So I contribute the success in my life to those people that stepped in my life when I needed them the most. Everyone from Tom Lepic to Reese Morgan to the Finchams, the family that I moved in with. And this, just having that support system is important. Mm-hmm. So I thought... Why not take all those lessons learned and all those experiences and put them into a curriculum or an organization? So we initially started it as an organization, Mm -hmm. and it was called the Fifth Ward Saints. It was just a football team. Mm -hmm. We started this football team because football plays such a major part in my life, and I knew that it could transform those kids' lives, the ones that bought into the the process. Mm -hmm. So um, we started the football team, but we were missing something. I felt at the end of practice, man, we would have a great practice, but then everybody would go. They would leave, and I felt like we could be doing more in those kids' lives, but we were missing the mark. Well, and not just that. There, there were some parents coming with different situations, yep. mm-hmm. uh, home, homelessness, um, issues with their children, and so... Um, as a social worker, we decided, well, why not tie in mm-hmm. uh, social services to uh, the football? That way we're help- helping the children and families. And it has grown from there. You know, that football team and social work has turned into social, emotional, athletic development. And so we now have the Seed Project. And uh, the Seed Project, we have, we've spoken about it before. Um, uh, it's a curriculum that we have developed. So it came to me one night where we were at home it had to be about 10, 11 o'clock at night. We had a, a knock on the door, and I went to answer the door, and it was one of the kids on the football team and his little sister, and he had a hammer in his hand. And, you know, at that time of night, I'm wondering if he was off his meds or what he's showing up at my house with a hammer. I'm like, what's going on? He told me that his mom was being beat up by his stepdad, and he didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, so did you call the police? He said, no. I said, what about family members? Anybody said, no, I didn't know what to do. So I came here. And in that moment, in that moment, I knew that I had to do more, that my situation was not unique that I grew up in. And those kids in that community were dealing with the same issues and they deserve somebody to take them and 
and teach them how to be successful despite what situation they were born in. So we took that opportunity with your um, social work background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We What we did, you know, when you say um, teach the kids more, what we try to do is put systems in place to help uh, all of the individuals and families that we uh, come across. Um, and we've talked about it before, but the SEED Project, um, our little football team and social work turned into uh, social, emotional, athletic development. And with that, we've now trademarked what's called the SEED Project. Uh, it's a curriculum that helps to put systems in place for at-risk youth and young adults in which uh, we provide uh, services uh, such as, well, we don't provide services. Let me back up. It's a curriculum in which an organization can provide services such as literacy, case management, soft skills training, and training for the professionals who are working along with those kids. Bottom line is we're here to dismantle systems that aren't working to help uh, people become successful in adult life. Yeah, and the focus is at-risk youth, but we found ourselves over the years that they're the problems that we address aren't just an at-risk youth issue. There's kids that live in the suburbs that deal with these same issues, underlying issues. There's kids of all races and backgrounds. So our focus initially was at-risk student athletes, which is still a part of what we, who we serve. But we found that by adding the ballet and the, the arts, theater arts, there's kids that we reach that aren't necessarily at-risk but also can benefit from the, pro, the the curriculum. I mentioned earlier that all the bits and pieces out of my story, um, we combine to make the seed project. So the reading literacy, in my case, I had an underlying learning disability, dyslexia, and it affected my ability to read. And it made school hard for me because I couldn't read. And if you can't read, it affects every aspect of school. So we thought, we can affect change in kids by teaching them to read on grade level. The C project is about dismantling systems that aren't effective for at-risk youth, young adults, uh, people in general. And you take this curriculum and you put it into organizations and into um, institutions. institutions that are working with at-risk people to actually help support them and make them successful young adults. So our motto is to level the playing field for all individuals. So we're here to affect change in at-risk and non-at-risk students through our SEED curriculum. So if you guys are interested in learning more about the SEED curriculum, I would like to meet and be a guest speaker for your administrators, schools. You can go to honorraiseenterprise.net to schedule a free um, consultation, needs assessment to see how we can best help you guys. But with that being said, that being said, I think we wrap it up. 
Guys, thanks for hanging in there with us. Hopefully you got a better insight on why we're so passionate about what we do and why we're so anxious to affect change and how we want to see the future of the United States be the best it could be. Yeah, the best. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.